Welcome to the Financial Residency Podcast, where we are devoted exclusively to the financial well-being of physicians and helping you achieve the financial freedom you deserve. This is your financial residency without the long hours and sleepless nights. Let's welcome your host and primary care physician for your finances, Ryan Inman. What's up, everyone? Welcome back. Really excited to have you guys here. Today, we're going to be talking with Mike Lashardi all about how to be a long-distance landlord and actually be successful at it. And I got to admit, part of this, I was really interested in my own personal stuff. We had bought some investment property being long-distance, but I just did not have it in me to self-manage these properties. So I actually hired a property manager. Whereas Mike is going to talk to us all about uh, how to be that property manager and still do this from even across the country, which is what he's been doing. And it's a fascinating story. He's married to a resident and he's just, he's doing great things in this space. So it's going to be a really fun show. I know we've been talking about some real estate stuff in the uh, most recent episodes, but we will be getting back to the curbside consults. And I would really like you guys to go and ask your questions for those segments, if you could, at speakpipe.com slash financial residency, or you could join the financial residency community group on Facebook and ask your question there. And I've been getting actually a lot of great feedback from you guys um, around what you would actually like to see on the show. And uh, so I know we've been chatting a lot about some of maybe the higher paying specialties and showcasing some of the stories with uh, higher earning specialties, but we will be getting back to some of the lower paying specialties and seeing how financial planning can work for those. So we'll look at cash flow and some budgeting as well as some kind of investment topics as well. So if you have any input, I would love to hear. So please go to uh, the Financial Residency Community Group in Facebook, join us, and uh, look forward to seeing you inside there. So let's now jump right into the interview with Mike Lashardi on how to be an awesome long-distance landlord. Mike, thanks so much for being on the show. Really excited to have you here. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Of course. Mike, you and I were chatting off of one of the, actually the episodes that we had done on real estate here on the show, and it came up that you are a long-distance landlord, and that is something that I didn't do. Um, a long-distance landlord, I should say, without a property manager. You are the property manager, which is something Correct. that I did not do. We were long-distance landlords, but we hired a property manager here in town before we moved here. So it's really fascinating. I'm excited to kind of dive in this with you. So can you just tell me a little bit, like how did you get into being a long-term landlord and what is it like? I actually got into this about 10 years ago in 2008. I was just leaving college and my parents had an opening at their company they needed to fill. So I went to work for my dad. He was a residential contractor. So I ran the office there and then started managing his rentals. We were right around 18 to 20 units at the time. And uh, he passed away about a year and a half later with that, you know, somebody had to sort of step up and take care of this. We put the construction stuff aside and I just assumed full management of all of my mom's properties now. And my wife is a physician and was going into residency uh, starting this past summer. And we were pretty sure we were ready to get out of Southern California. So we were pretty sure we were going to end up leaving. So for about a year and a half, two years before that, I 
saw this coming and worked really hard to kind of put some systems in place that would then allow me to do everything from long distance. So I am in Baltimore now, managing about 14, 15 units in Southern California. And, you know, it's definitely interesting. But uh, the great thing is there's a lot of great technology out there that makes it super doable. And we'll jump into some of the technology in just a little bit here, but I'm just curious. So you started in person, you know, local, set up yep. the, the process procedures, the technology, all this, and then moved literally across the country and are now doing this. And do you feel like you're missing out? Do you feel like it's a lot more difficult to do this being so far away? No, I mean, honestly, I have my attendants trained pretty well, <laughs> which we'll talk about. Okay. But, you know, there's a couple logistical challenges as far as when a unit comes up for rent. Luckily, that's usually only maybe one or two a year. So I would say challenges, that's been the hardest thing is making sure I can get on the ground, you know, to get them re-rented out. But so far, everything's gone great. It hasn't been an issue. Actually, in the fall, we did a full interior renovation of two of the units and managed that from over here, too. So it all works out pretty well. That speaks that you've set up a lot of process and procedures and vetted people, you know, subcontractors and things like that before you left, or maybe you had to change during it, but you're really relying on a lot of people there to, yes. to help you out. And obviously money will take care of that, right? Everyone wants to be motivated by that. So, you know, you found a good team and hopefully uh, your rentals don't have a, a ton of turnover. You know, one of the things that I've chatted on a little bit here that Taylor and I had a few rentals in, in Vegas, but we bought them when we were still in training and fellowship in San Diego. But I had all of that infrastructure in place because my whole family does real estate. I had all that in place. It was significantly, I feel, easier for me to do that. And one of that is, um, you know, I also had a property manager. You know, walk me through the process of being a property manager for yourself long distance. Just to tie in a little bit with what you said, I had a lot of that. I mean, I got to work with my dad for about a year and a half, and he was brilliant in this property real estate industry. So I had sort of some of those same benefits, making connections through that that have served me well, and just learning a lot from him. But the process for me of managing stuff from over here, I rely a ton on technology. Everything that I do is automated. All of the rent payment all of the work orders when people you know, have a problem on the unit and then I need to get a vendor involved, all of that's automated. So mm. for me, it's you know maybe a, once a week, a couple times, you know, a month, I'm sitting here and you know dealing with something active. You know, really, it's managing the work orders, which are not very frequent. And then when a unit comes up, it's it's making sure I have people on the ground to do the move out inspection to you know get the unit back ready. I actually just had one come up I was dealing with last week and I'm flying to California next week. Happened to already be there, so that worked out nicely. My process usually it takes me about a day to rent out the unit, so it's very quick. Paperwork is done online remotely, and that comes back to me and then set them up in the systems and we roll from there. I mean, it's amazing that you've kind of figured all this out and set this up so you could do remotely. So a couple of the things that I've worried about is my time, right? I always say like time is your most valuable resource. It's not money. Yes. And, and so this is going to require some time and you've obviously got the system down for all the process and normal everyday kind of things down to a science really. But what do you do with like the midnight guys that call you? I'm always worried like 2 a.m. and the pipe burst and I'm like, yeah. Uh, even if I was, I guess, in town, what am I going to do? Because I'm not that handy. But I don't know why it's different for me 
to be my own property manager and field those, you feel like I'm going to field those phone calls. What do you do with that? Or does that not happen? And I'm just making it up. Well, no, it, it does. I think part of it comes down to training your tenants properly. I'll tell you kind of a funny story. Right after my dad passed away, we went to Vegas uh, with my mom. It was going to be their 25th anniversary. So we took her to Vegas for the weekend and we left on a Sunday and I had just gotten off the plane and one of my tenants calls me and, you know, I was gone. I had let everybody know I'm gone. So I, uh, you know, I just ignored the call. She called me three times in a row. So I'm like, oh, something must be on fire. Picked it up. And she literally was asking me to change a light bulb in her kitchen for her. That was, you know, a couple of years into this. And that taught me the, the importance of training people that I'm a person. I'm not a robot that sits here to take your every call. So I set up a system called Grasshopper. I don't know if you've ever used it, but it's like a virtual phone system for entrepreneurs. Okay. And I have a main line for just general maintenance that people can call. They're supposed to put everything online, but if for some reason they can't get on the internet, they can call and leave a message. If they push to, the extension goes direct to my cell phone. Periodically this happens. It always happens Saturdays, Sundays, or evenings. That's just the way it, it's Murphy's Law with yeah, uh, rental maintenance. To answer your question, like yes, it does happen. Um, sometimes it's inevitable. The number one way to help is don't give out your cell phone. Have one of these systems. You know, I've trained my tenants that unless it's something where the roof is falling off, we're going to get to it the next morning. Like it's not going to happen at 2 a.m. So they they know unless something's falling down, don't call me at 2 a.m. They're all very respectful of that because we've had the conversations. One of the biggest things that has saved me from that is just being super proactive about the maintenance on my unit. When I talk about stuff going out on the weekends or Saturdays, it's usually water heaters when the supply houses are closed. So about once a year, I try to go through or have one of my guys go through and inspect all the units and check dates and make sure everything's looking good. And then we do the same, of course, move in, move out, all that stuff. So if I see a water heater is, you know, five, seven years old and it's been in there for a while, sometimes I'll just come through and replace it ahead of time without waiting for it to go bad because I know it's going to go bad on a night a weekend or something mm -hmm. when I'm not available. Being really proactive about stuff is super helpful. And then having just the trusted vendors that I can offload that stuff to. So tenant calls me, I go straight to my plumber, hey, water heater's out. We have a great relationship and we've built that over the past decade. So he will pretty much drop what he's doing when something comes up and go and take care of my tenants because I take care of him. You know, I, I do things like send him gifts and cards at the holidays and treat him like a person, like I would want to be treated. And those kind of relationships really help you out in those, those situations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, I mean, uh, excellent networking and then just being a kind, caring person, it goes a long way. Um, and just yeah, showing people sure. that you care about the things that they do and the work that they do and that they, you know, their work is valued. So I, I, yeah. I actually love, love that. Um, we, we take care of the people that help us out too, even though I pay them a monthly fee and I'm not my own property sure. manager, you know, I still help them and we've got our, you know, our normal handyman that, that they contract through and, you know, we do all sorts of stuff at, you know, Christmas yeah. time and all that. So, so we've, we've got over my fear. That was always my fear. <laughs> so I, I wanted to get that one out of the way just personally, but you've mentioned a few times training. So what is that initial vetting process or what does that initial training look like if, you know, for what you're referencing? It starts, and this is something I've had to grow in over the years, right? It starts with just the initial meetings at the property. I'm very clear about, you know, this is what we take care of. I've also 
put a lot of stuff in my lease agreement. A lot of times people are afraid to, you know, edit them because they're legal documents. And yeah, you don't want to go in and redline and take out all the legalese. But I actually add some of this stuff to the language that, you know, if you get locked out, don't call me. I don't have a key. I can't do anything. Here's the locksmith's phone number. He will charge you X, Y, Z. And that's what you're going to have to do. I would suggest putting a lockbox outside somewhere with a key. Anticipating here what problems could come up and here's how you need to deal with them as a tenant. You know, obviously I'm here, but I got tired of people calling me because they were locked out and I can't do anything about it. So some of it's that. A lot of it is, is just those initial conversations. And also, you know, people forget Every once in a while, I'll get somebody that, you know, I have this awesome online work order system and they will text me or call me and it's, hey, you know what? I'll take care of that, but I need you to go put it in the work order system before I can take care of that. So it's constantly redirecting people like this is the right process. This is what you need to do because I noticed that when people were emailing me things and let's say I had five or six units going on at the same time, it's really easy to lose track of stuff. Yeah. And especially if this isn't, I mean, this isn't my primary, you know, career day job. So I have two or three other full-time things that I do. Mm-hmm. So it's really easy to get stuff lost. And a lot of times when I'm talking to tenants about it, it's like, this is for your benefit because I'm one person and I want to make sure you get taken care of right away. And I want to make sure that you have a nice place to live. And it's all about doing this for their benefit. And people are generally pretty receptive about that kind of stuff. Since I've started being a little more direct about it and rolled out the online work orders and stuff, it's helped a lot. And people have been great about sticking with the processes for the most part. To find these trainable tenants, which sounds weird, but let's just kind of go with it. Yeah. Yeah, How how do you find these these tenants? Like, is it just Craigslist or like what I always feel like Craigslist is like the default, but it's always the most uncomfortable for me to say, because like, I always think I like Craigslist creepers. Yeah. So, yeah, for sure. Like how, how are you vetting these people remotely to live in one of your places? I have a rule that I will not rent somebody if I have not met them or somebody I trust, you know, in the event that I can't make it over there to actually do the appointments. I have people that I trust that, especially with Craigslist, you get all these emails. Oh, I move in from London and, you know, I can't see the property, but I want to give you a deposit. First of all, anything like that, gone. I've had a couple that I think actually were viable situations. Um, and I've had a couple where people were coming and trying to rent for their kids and I couldn't meet their kids. And I'm, I'm just not willing to do it. So that's part of it. I'm super selective with the properties that we have, and we'll probably get into this a little bit later too. I'm big on owning rental property that you yourself would live in, mm-hmm. in an area that you would live in and keeping it nice. So going back to the preventative maintenance, and like I said, the couple units that we just went through and gutted and renovated, they were only 10 years old. We had built them from the ground in like late 2007, but still trying to keep it fresh. And when people move in somewhere that you've taken care of, it incentivizes them to take care of it. Probably the hardest thing for me I've had to learn is just trusting my gut because the few bad uh, situations I've had, nine times out of 10 had a bad gut feeling about it going into it. And I've still rented it for whatever reason. Hey, the market's slow right now, having a hard time finding somebody. Oh, I'm probably just being silly. So trusting my gut I've learned is a really important part of finding the right people. 
And, you know, as far as what kind of stuff I require from them, we do a credit check. And I used to be super selective, like, you have anything pretty much because I have 20 applicants and and half of them are perfect credit. So if you're not, you know, you're not going to get it. After the economic downturn, that's changed. A lot of people have stuff now. So Mm -hmm. I still look at credit and I, I go through it very detailed. And if there's questions, you know, I always go back to people and ask them, why is this on here? And I tell them before they submit, like on the application, there's a space. If there's anything negative that I'm going to find in your credit report, please explain it there. Because if you don't, I'm going to feel like you're trying to hide it from me. And then checking references. And I never used to do that. Taking the time to go and call a few people and past landlords and some of the personal references. I've learned some really interesting things and haven't rented to people because of that. So make sure you're keeping the property nice, trusting your gut and making sure you're checking the references and credit checks and all that stuff. Mike, that's great advice right there. And I I like literally all of it. So you mentioned the trusting your gut and having a few bad apples, if you will. Would you share like a story of a bad tenant? Like, and I'm, I'm hesitant to ask you this because then I'm going to be like, well, every tenant's going to do this to me. So like, <laughs> I'm kind of like earmuffing myself, but at the same time, wow. like, I really want to know, like, do you have a, do you have a horror story or two? There's a few. I'm the first one is kind of interesting and it's not actually my story, but it's from a family member. And this goes back to buying a property that you'd live in, in an area that you'd live in, not saying that people that live in bad areas or whatever are all bad people. But I have found that there is more likelihood of getting certain things happening. So for example, family member owned this four unit building. The building was old, built in like the fifties. One of the tenants started getting a really high electric bill, like double what they should be paying. (laughs) And um, yeah, it had been for several months and they finally called and found out the guy next door tapped into the wall and tapped into their power and was stealing their power. Yep. Um, so what happened was this unit was built in the 50s. So now to fix that, you have to go get a permit. Well, now you have to bring the whole unit up to code because you're in there touching the electrical. Yep. So that's a big part of why I say buy a property where you that you'd be willing to live in in an area you'd live in and keep it nice and do the inspections. That's one thing. Probably the worst tenant I've ever had. And it was a really hard time. We This was one that like I totally had a gut feeling that it was going to be bad. And it was a really hard market. And I just accepted it, even though I had that really strong gut feeling. She caused a ton of problems on the property. She would call the police every day, every other day on the other tenants. You know, he's watching TV at 2 a.m. and, you know, hockey games and all this stuff. And I talked to the other tenants on the property. He was on vacation. He wasn't even there. The police actually had to tell her stop calling unless it's an emergency. It got so bad. And all this other stuff happened. And then this is right when I had my son, right? And it had already been a difficult pregnancy. And then my son was born and he went into the hospital at four days old with the UTI. He was admitted for a week. So we're dealing with all of that. And then he comes home and he's got colic and acid reflux and all of this stuff going on. And at the same time, she's calling me at two or three in the morning. This is when I stopped giving out my cell phone and went to grasshopper for sure. Um, with all of this crazy stuff. I remember one night specifically, my son wouldn't sleep and I put him in the car and drove him around for about an hour and a half at two in the morning. Uh, And she's calling me back to back and I'm not picking up the phone. So I ended up giving her notice to move. She threatened to bring an attorney in. So at that point I said, well, I'm not talking to you anymore. If you need something, email me. It'll all be written correspondence. I ended up being really firm 
And, you know, hey, you can say whatever you want. If you want to try to take me to court, no problem, but you're getting out. And she ended up getting out. It didn't end up being a problem at all. And I think it's also having her cards. Like, I know I have an awesome attorney for property management that's in my, you know, sort of network. And so when I served her notices, everything went through him. I had documented everything. I'm not going to say it never happens, but since I started trusting my gut and doing a little bit more vetting on the tenants, like we were just talking about, I haven't had, and it's been four years, I haven't had anybody like that at all. I haven't even had to evict anybody and, you know, give anybody notice since that. So these are the situations that you learn from and hopefully hearing uh, some of it from me saves you from learning uh, personally. So you haven't had to evict anyone in like the over the 10 years you've been doing this, right? Yeah, I've never actually had to go through a full eviction. I've never had to go to court ever. Um, I have given people notice to move over certain things. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we have time for one more story, but this one's kind of funny if you sure. if you yeah. want to. So I really liked this guy when I met him, like really liked him, had a great gut feeling about him. And this was about three weeks before my dad passed away. So rented it to him, super nice guy. He moved in and we were working with him because he wanted um, a satellite dish on the building. And so we're very particular about that kind of stuff. We don't let tenants just go and mount a dish because we've had so many issues with some of these satellite companies. You know, uh, one particular, they mounted a dish. It didn't work. They pulled it out moved it over two feet, mounted it again, and didn't plug the holes in the stucco. So we're always involved in this process. He had had to move the appointment for something, and then it's rained, so they couldn't come out to install it. And then my dad passed away. And he called me two days after my dad passed away and said, hey, I got the appointment rescheduled for December 4th. Okay, that was the day of my dad's memorial, which I was not going to miss for a satellite dish appointment, right? He says uh, on the phone, I said, hey, but I can't do it that day. It's my dad's memorial. And he literally said to me, well, you know, Mike, I'm getting really tired of not being able to watch my football. That was literally his response to my dad died. You know, we obviously didn't. (laughs) We we didn't do that appointment. We had a bunch of issues with him parking in the driveway in this building that blocks all the other cars. And I had documented everything, like letter after letter, after email, phone calls. And so I finally gave him notice to move. And he writes me this email that was like, I really don't want to move. You know, what would you do? My daughter is 125 pounds and, you know, 5'3". And uh, when she comes home late at night, I don't want her parking out in the street. So I have her park in the driveway. He has a two-car garage, right? So I responded. I was in a similar situation with him. And I'm like, well, my wife's five foot even and 115 pounds. And if she gets home late at night, I park in the street so she can pull in. That was sort of the response. People come up with like the most random, obscure things of excuses on why they're doing things and, yeah. and or why they're not doing things. It just exactly. It, so the couple of things that I kind of take away, Mike, from your stories are one: document everything, yes. like everything. If you're going to decide to go down this path, it is a little bit extra work, right? Because mm-hmm. you are the landlord. You're not you're not shipping it off to uh, or and the property manager. You're not just shipping it off to a property management company. So you need to have some process procedures put in place. Yep. Experiment maybe on your first unit, kind of build up these things if you're planning on owning multiple units. Yes. And then the the next thing that I kind of take with this is, you know, obviously do your due diligence and document everything. 
yeah. um, uh, with, Definitely. with, with respect trust to, yourself. to that, trust your gut, if you will, on judging character. That's a tough thing to do. But when you have a lot of applicants, you can kind of do that and yeah. talk with people and do some due diligence, you know, call the past landlords, figure out what happened, why they're moving, were they good tenants, were they bad tenants. It's a little bit more difficult to vet a subcontractor unless you literally hire them to do the work. Like you can't be like, oh, give me a list of your clients and I want to call them all because one, they're probably not going to give it to you and two, that, yeah. that's kind of weird. So you wouldn't really yeah. ask that. Well, so they're how not going to give you a bad one <laughs> you know, well, to talk to. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's a tough thing too. Like if they you know, had one angry customer a year, they're not going to be like, oh, here's three good ones and the guy that was pissed off and left, uh, you should call him too. How do you vet your subcontractors? You know, somebody I know recently just renovated a house and she went on Yelp and found her contractor on Yelp and just moved ahead okay. and ended up getting, it was a major problem. The guy was horrible. Oh, There's a lot of these resources online, right? There's Yelp, there's Google. First of all, Yelp would not be my first resource for construction type stuff. But a lot of times I look at multiple, I look at Angie's list, Yelp, Google, if they have a Facebook page and the Facebook reviews, and if there's a consensus among people, then I feel a little more comfortable. If a lot, if everybody has consistently rated somebody high, but what you'll kind of find is on Yelp, you'll see maybe sometimes really good reviews, but then you go to Angie's list, which is specifically geared towards, you know, contractors and you'll see that they're not so well reviewed. So I do that. I also rarely ever use a new contractor unless I'm really in a pinch without getting multiple bids and talking to multiple people. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of like what you referenced with the tenants. When you have more applicants, you get a better gut feeling. You know, you can, you can kind of pick up on the stronger ones. It's the same thing with a, with a contractor. And I'll rarely, if I get multiple bids, rarely will I go with the cheapest guy unless they're all really close and he's the guy I had the best gut feeling about. A lot of times I'm looking for middle of the road, that has worked out really well for me. And you can see, like, sometimes you'll have somebody come in at, you know, $3,000 more than another guy for a paint job. And you're like, okay, well, what's missing? Like, something in your bid is either missing or this other guy's charging me too much. So it gives you a little more baseline to compare people. And I also typically only use contractors that are insured. And I make sure I ask for general liability and workers' comp. Not always so important with something like a painter or, you know, a house cleaner or whatever. But if you're having an electrician or something go in, just looking for that and asking for their license number and you can go and look up the license on the contractor's board and, and make sure there's nothing against it. That right there tells me that these people have their act together and they're at least covering themselves. Something simple happens. I had a tenant uh, change out a light fixture in their in their unit and it shorted out some other stuff. Thank goodness that was all it was. You don't hire somebody licensed to do that and then it burns down. You have no protection. I think those three things, you know, just between looking at the reviews and if you can find independent references, talking to people, I'm lucky in that in Southern California, I have a lot of connections in the industry. So a lot of times I'll ask also one of my trusted vendors, hey, who do you work with a lot that does this? And that's been really helpful too. My plumber's hooked me up with all sorts of people that have been great because I trust him and he works with these guys a lot. So that might actually be kind of my top recommendation is first go with the people that you like and see who they know in their network. 
as you're describing this, I'm just sitting here nodding my head because it's super similar to finding a financial advisor, kind of vetting that process and going through. You don't just pick one person and say, hey, you're the person for me without looking around and finding out you know, what else is out there? Who, who else does what the, what this is? Do they have any negative marks? Have they ever been sued by a client? There's a lot of similarities yeah. um, in yeah. what you're saying. And my next comment was going to be, you know, if you need to do anything inside a financial plan, let's say purchase insurance. Well, if you're working with a fee-only advisor, they can't sell you insurance. So what would you do? You would ask the advisor, hey, where can I get insurance? And they're going to recommend usually one or two people that they've worked yeah. through and vetted and they're not going to give you someone that's, I mean, I hope they don't give you someone that does a crappy job because even yep. though it's not their business, that still does reflect something on them. So if your plumber tells you, hey, go to Jane over here who does electrical work and you go to Jane and she sucks, that does come back on the plumber a little bit. And you're going, why would you send me over there? She was terrible. Or, you know, send me over to this guy and he was even worse. Like it does kind of affect that relationship. So there, yeah, it's a, a great advice to ask the already trusted resource if they have anything and, and expand the network. For sure. That's funny. That That is very true. There's so many similarities. And I mean, it's just good business practice and good life practice, really, I think, with a lot of things. Yeah. I mean, get multiple bids, get multiple quotes. Don't just take the first yeah. thing. Like I try to relate stuff back to, to planning to make it relevant, but I yeah. mean, it's literally everywhere. Like if you're going to go and, and work at ABC Hospital out in, you know, let's say LA. Well, I would be making sure that you're looking at market comps and you're looking at what a physician in your specialty, you know, what they're getting paid. And then when yes. you start to negotiate the contract, make sure you have an expert there that does this all day, every day and helps negotiate Yep, and can tell you, Hey, well, based on, you know, the data that's out there and that, you know, there's reports you can buy and things you can do. This is the range that you should be looking for. I mean, you don't you don't just walk in on the first job and be like, "Oh, you offered me this. This seems like a lot. I'll do it." Yeah, you know, I mean, I want to relate it to them, but I mean, real estate and you know, finance, all this is very well connected. It's all business. Yes. Um, yes. So, you know, overall, I mean, amazing advice. Even outside of our business sense, I mean, think about what our wives do and I mean, have you ever gone to a doctor and they told you you need to do XYZ and it, it just didn't sit right with you and you go get a second opinion. It's happened to me. And I'm, I'm so glad I did because it turned out the advice that I got was horrible. So it just permeates every, every avenue, I think, of what we do. In high school, I was in Vegas here just visiting and I went to the doctor and they said, uh, we hear a murmur and it's irregular. You need to go to a cardiologist. And I'm like, uh, you know, 17. Yeah. <laughs> I'm running God. literally a five, 10 mile. Like I am in amazing shape, yeah. barely any body fat. And I'm going, huh, that's like weird. But now I'm freaked out because I don't know anything medical. And right. I hadn't met my wife at the time. And so, you know, and of course my family freaks out. So we go to a cardiologist and he's like, yeah, you're going to need this, this, and that. And I'm going, what is happening? And so we're chatting over it and I said, I, I want to go get like two more opinions because this is just yep. crazy. It ended up being nothing. And the guy yep. was wrong, which is crazy, but essentially after getting to know kind of how the town operates and everything, and I'm, I'm not surprised yeah. um, by the quality of care that some of the providers give here in town. Um, yep. I guess I'll put it that way, but yeah, get a second opinion because that would have been potentially life-changing. Um, yeah, for sure. Kind of thing. Now we're not talking anything life-changing, right? We're talking about some rental real estate and yeah. things, but still the point is well taken. So excellent Absolutely. advice, Mike. 
So I'm a, an attending, let's say I'm five years out, I'm doing all the right things, maxing my 403Bs or 401Ks, my IRAs, all that kind of great stuff. And I decided, hey, I want to look at rental real estate and we don't need to dive in the specifics of the real estate itself, but sure. let's just say that this attending says, I'm gonna be a long distance landlord. Do you have any tips or tricks or resources for them that have really helped you out? And you know, feel free to shout out some names of companies and things like that. I'll make sure I list them in the show notes, but do you have any good resources that could help someone become a, let's say a first time long distance landlord? Definitely. Oh, where do I start? There's so many good ones that I found and worked with. One of my favorites is called Cozy, C-O-Z-Y. It is completely free and it's a great resource if you're new to this, just to go, they have a lot of information and training courses and stuff for like how to become a landlord, how to be a better landlord. So there's great stuff on there, but also completely free. They do automatic rent processing like ACH uh, deposits. So, you know, you basically put in your properties, your leases, you add the tenants, the tenants get an email to sign up and there's no fees for you or for the tenant and they can electronically pay you your rent. Electronic rent payment has been one of the like transformative things for me just because A, you're not chasing checks. I can see when people have initiated their transfer, even if it hasn't hit my account yet. So I know, hey, at least it's on its way. I don't need to hound this guy. And one of the new things that I haven't actually used yet, I just found out last week that they added, was online work order management. Mm. Also completely free. I pay for a resource to do that, and then I'll tell you about it in a second, and it's great. But I am going to explore Cozy a little bit more in that realm and see sort of how it works. So that's just another thing that they offer. The company I use for the work order management is a company called Landport, all one word. It's a great system. One of my favorite things about it is you can set up all your vendors in there. And so let's say you're my tenant and you say, hey, I have a you know toilet that's not working. You go in and put it in. I've entered my plumber. I can literally take that and in about 15 seconds, dispatch it over to my plumber. He gets an email. Hey, Mike needs you to go check this out at this property. Here's the contact information. So I don't even have to think about it. I don't have to manage it. And then there's a dashboard that shows you here's what's in progress. Here's the different stages. It even allows, my vendors don't do this, but it even allows vendors to invoice you directly through there. And it's pretty inexpensive. I paid for the annual plan, so you get a discount and I think I'm paying around $800 a year for it, which over the number of units that I manage is well worth that cost. Mm -hmm. That's been a lifesaver. As far as renting out, there's another company called rentapplication.net. You can create all your applications and save them in there. The way I used to do credit checks is I get an application, people write me a check for the application fee. I have to then transfer their information from the application onto a credit check form, send that over to the bureau. It takes between you know two hours and a day, depending on how busy they are to get it back. And then I have to go through it and all that kind of stuff. So with rent application, it's also completely free. There's no fees at all. You set up the application. You send the prospective tenant a link. They pay rent application directly. You can choose if you want them to run just a normal credit check or you also want them to run like an eviction check and a criminal history check, which I have them do all of it. Mm. And I get it back in a matter of minutes from when the tenant supports it or submits it. It comes back to me within five to 10 minutes. Oh, wow. So it's instantaneous. And that's why I say when I rent out a unit, it takes me about a day because of this process. So they're great. Love rentapplication.net. 
I know we talked a little bit about listing rentals and Craigslist. That was sort of my go-to when I got into it. And I still list stuff on there. You know, it's free and it's easy and I still get inquiries. There's also Westside Rentals, if you've ever used that before. So they don't charge anything to be a landlord and to list your properties, but they charge their prospective tenants who are doing searching. I think it's like $60 or so for a couple months worth of access. So that in and of itself is sort of vetting people on its own because these people are willing to pay a fee to get access to the rentals. So it's there's some sort of accountability. They have skin in the game. So I found some great tenants using them as well, and that's free for us. My favorite currently is Zillow. I'm sure everybody has seen that, heard that. It's advertised everywhere. Mm-hmm. What's cool about Zillow is you create your landlord account, and again, it's free, and you post your property, and they send it out to four or five other sites, ones like hot pads, and there's a couple others. So it gets listed instantaneously on four or five other sites. And I get tons and tons of submissions through them. And just real quick, I'll tell you a little bit about my process for renting because it's relevant to these. I typically pick one day. I used to let people call me, oh, I want to see it today at four o'clock. Okay, I'll get there. And then I'd get back to the office. Oh, can I see it today at six? All right, drive back down there. And, you know, it's not sustainable. Being remote, especially, I know, like I'm flying to California next week. Friday, I have one day set aside. I use something called Calendly. That's a link I send to prospective tenants. They book a time on the calendar. It's a 20-minute slot. And I will fill that whole day. I'll probably have 20 showings on Friday. And by the end of it, I'll have probably three or four at least that have applied And I can make my decision and it's done. Since I started doing it like that, it has just revolutionized the, A, the amount of effort I have to put in, which is important when you're doing a lot of other things. You know, it it just streamlines the whole process. And with Zillow, I end up getting probably at least 30 to 50 leads on every unit that I put out there. And so it doesn't take long to fill up a whole day. And, you know, by the end of it, then it's rented out. So those are some of my favorites. There's a lot of good ones out there. There's also a new property inspection one that I'm starting to use called Z Inspector. When you do your move-in and move-out walkthrough, you're doing it on an app, on the phone with the people. It has them sign right at the bottom, and then it sends everybody a PDF report with photos. So it cool. saves you you know, from, oh, that was here when I got here. Well, it wasn't in the report. You know, or here's a picture of what it looked like when you got here, and here's what it looks like now. And that's um, one. Of, it's funny. So a couple of things on that, and then we'll we'll wrap it up here. Is yep. one of the biggest pieces of advice that I can give people that are listening that are renters is when you go through a place right at the very very beginning, and you're excited, or maybe you're not, and you just want to get out and get moved in, whatever it is. Take time on that initial inspection because. At the end of this, the landlord is going to walk through it with that inspection list. And if it's not on there, even though you're like, oh, this happened, if it's not on there, you're going to probably get charged for it. So walk through, do the initial inspection, take pictures. When we were renters, just from my real estate background, I just knew I had literally videoed me walking the entire place. And that way I could reference it because I could barely remember three weeks ago what I looked at, much less a year or two years later on move out if something was there or not. So stains on the carpet, chips on the wall, whatever it might be, make sure you bring it up. Or if you happen to not see it when you're doing that initial inspection, but you see it within a week or two, you know, reach out to the landlord and say, hey, this was actually here. I saw this. Most people who are landlords are going to be good people and they're not going to hose you on something if that's the case and they you guys yeah. all just kind of missed it Absolutely. but don't just let it kind of go 
Yeah, and don't. I mean, nobody listening to this is probably going to do this, but the one the one time I've I'm always very reasonable if somebody finds something quick, you know, within a week or so. But I literally had somebody the day after they moved in send me a picture of this like four foot tall scrape on the wall by the front door where obviously a fridge or something went against it and say, oh, this was here when I moved in, you know. Yeah, so, come on. Within reason, obviously, um, yeah. you know, people do stuff like that. But yeah, it, it's super important to document that stuff. And as you're talking to your prospective landlord, get a feeling for what they, how they behave as far as like wear and tear. If somebody's been there for six months or less, I expect the unit to look pretty close to what it looked like when they moved out. Somebody's been there for a couple of years. I'm not going to nickel and dime them. I just had a guy move out for two years and the carpet was dirty and you know I didn't charge him a cleaning fee because they've been good tenants. The same way as a landlord, you get a feeling for your tenants. You've got to get a feeling for your landlord and understand how they're going to behave and take care of you. Yeah. In competitive markets, this is a lot harder to do because you're going to be one of many people looking at a place. I always like to ask him, like, with your last tenant moving out, how much of their deposit did you take? Yep. Just one simple question. Most are yeah, you're going to tell you, oh, I took a little bit or it was this. You know, if they're like, oh, we took the whole thing because they demolished the place. You got to kind of take it at face value. But at the same time, you're like, hmm, you're probably not going to get your deposit back at that yeah. case. And, you know, you better yep. like the house and, and everything else uh, in, in that. Thing. You mentioned a, a ton of great resources. I actually use Calendly myself. It's how we obviously book the podcast, but it's also how I work with all my clients. I absolutely love it. It, it basically just le- lets you link up to like a Google calendar and then you allow certain time slots and certain meetings and then it's all electronic. So there's no, Hey, you know, are you available at three o'clock tomorrow? No, but let's do Tuesday at two. You know, it's all that's gone. It's amazing. One of the things you didn't kind of recommend that maybe this will help you is a public records 360. And it's a pretty cheap way to pull basically criminal and back history reporting on everyone. You can look at all the past places that they've lived. Um, it's kind of creepy how much information <laughs> is out there on all of us, but you know, go ahead and look yourself up. Like myself there's, a, up there's a, there's a ton of it, right? But that's a good one to pull because you don't want to be pulling uh, records and find out they're convicted felons for whatever it is. And yeah, you know, you have a bunch of problems, especially if you have multiple people. So, well, yeah, Mike, for sure. Thank I like you. it. That's awesome. Thanks. Yeah. And thank you so much for being on the show. It's always fun talking with you, bud. And, you know, I hope uh, everyone gets something out of this show because I think you had a ton of great knowledge dropping on us. And I really appreciate you coming on and talking about being a long distance landlord. Um, my pleasure. It's always fun to chat. Hopefully it's helpful for everybody. I, I definitely think it is. And, you know, so thank you again, Mike. No problem. All right, so there we have it. How to be an amazing long-distance landlord and be successful at it. I know I was able to take away even a few little tips myself. So hopefully you guys got a lot of value and were able to walk away with a couple bits of uh, knowledge from uh, that interview with Mike. Like I mentioned in the very beginning of the show, we are going to get back to some of the curbside consults and answering your guys' questions. And I really would love for you guys to call in with some extra questions. You can do that at speakpipe.com slash financial residency or join us in the Facebook group community again at financial residency community on Facebook and ask your questions there. We will be diving into a lot of fun topics coming up, a lot of great episodes planned. So see you guys next week. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Financial Residency Podcast. 
This episode has ended, but your financial residency continues online. Head over to financialresidency.com where you'll find links to any resources mentioned in today's episode, along with other valuable tips and information that will help you regain your financial freedom. That's financialresidency.com.